Okay, hope everyone's doing okay. Hello, and uh, we were uh, looking last week at the Ksuva. Yes. And uh, I think you, you, you discovered that the Ksuva has a lot of stuff that you didn't automatically assume uh, was, was in there. And again, uh, just to list it very, very quickly, uh, the Ksuva has uh, four things in it, maybe five depending on how you count it. Uh, the first thing is that the husband, and it's really the husband's obligation, the husband obligates himself in all of the duties of a husband in a Jewish marriage. Now, the ksuba doesn't say what those duties are, really, but we know from halacha that the husband has two, three primary responsibilities in a marriage. Uh, one is to support his wife with food and shelter. Uh, the third is clothing. That may break the bank. No, okay, whatever. Uh, and the, uh, third, the third is uh, marital intimacy. That uh, I know it sounds funny to say there's an obligation to have marital intimacy, uh, but Judaism regards the uh, even the physical relationship of husband and wife as a very essential way of expressing love. And uh, if a man refuses, now the truth is that woman has an obligation as well. But if either one refuses, that is grounds for getting a get based in below. You know, if one wants to get divorced on that basis, that is a ground for for a get. So uh, in Hebrew, those three obligations are called she'er. She'er means uh, food and shelter. Kisus is clothing, like what you cover yourself, l'chasot. And ona is the periodic uh, visitation, which refers to marital intimacy. Interestingly enough, uh, the post can actually say that even the 12 days a month that a woman is a nida, so you would think that ona cannot be fulfilled during that period of time, there is still an ona obligation, and it is fulfilled by, um, now this is a difficult balance, by a friendly, affectionate talk of a non-sexual nature, meaning a husband's attitude during when his wife is Anita should not be, I don't talk to you, I don't see you, I don't notice you, but rather it's almost the other way around. When there is no physical intimacy, and that includes not only intercourse, but also hugging, kissing, holding hands, then the obligation becomes even more so to show affection in ways that uh, are substitutes for that. And in fact, some have said, and Chabad makes this point a lot, a lot of the uh, shaluchim, or shaluchot, actually mainly the women, make this point a lot, that the Torah wants to teach a married couple how to express affection without necessarily getting physical, meaning uh, sometimes people use physical affection as a way of short-circuiting real conversation and real understanding because we have this shortcut in which let's forget about the talk, let's just uh, go to the action, etc. And Nida forces men and women to think about uh, love and affection outside of the context of sexuality. And that is actually a useful and important thing for a married couple to learn that they can then use even when there is sexual availability, but they don't use just sex, so to speak. They use uh, communication and the like. So ona, therefore, which is the mitzvah of intimacy, is not only when uh, the woman is not a nida, but even when she is a nida, there is still a mitzvah of ona, but it will be done in a different way. All right, so that's the first thing the ksuba does. The ksuba simply says... I, as a man, will, uh, will observe the obligations of a husband towards his wife. Now, let's stop right there, because in, in many ways, that's actually a superfluous part of the ksuba. Let me explain why. 
Because even if you wouldn't have a ksuba, the husband would have to do that because he got married. In other words, you know, it's like saying, uh, you're, you know, you're signing a contract that you're going to keep Shabbos. Well, you don't need a contract to make you obligated to keep Shabbos. You've got to keep Shabbos even without a contract. So in many ways, that part of the ksuba is unnecessary because the obligations of a man towards a wife and vice versa are automatic. But nevertheless, we put it in so the man will understand very clearly what his obligations are. So let's ask a very simple question, even on that, even though this is not the major reason why you have a ksuva, because it's superfluous. The ksuva says the husband must support his wife. Food and shelter, clothing. And that includes medical expenses as well, and also expenses. So how come in the very religious world, it's the wife that supports the husband, right? A very common pattern uh, is, in fact, uh, in a typical Beis Yaakov, I don't know, Mayanot, maybe not, I don't know, uh, but if you would go to a, a seminary, let's say for younger, <laughs> I mean, girls out of high school, right after out of high school who go to seminary, their teachers will tell them over and over again, the biggest merit in the world is for you to marry a young man who will be learning in Kolel full time. Why, you're shaking your head, why, do you disagree? I disagree. No, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying it myself. I'm just telling you, I'm telling you what they're going to tell you. And they're going to tell you this. Now the question becomes, what does that mean? The Kasuva says the husband must support his wife. That, that, that's what the Kasuva says. So you have to understand an important thing, that uh, the Kasuva does create that obligation, the wife, uh, on her own free will, can give her husband a gift because she feels it's in the long-term benefit of the home. Which means every man who's learning in Kola and not supporting his wife is doing so because his wife has been graciously kind to give him that. Meaning it's not something he can demand and it's not something he's entitled to. It's something that she's doing for him in the hope that it'll be a long-term benefit for the home. A lot of times it is, sometimes it's not, and that, that has to be thought out very, very carefully. And at any time, at any time, she has the right to say, I think you need to go to work to support the family. She has the halachic right. The man cannot say, I want to stay in Kola, because his obligation is to support his wife. She can say, I'll let you off the hook for a while. Now, whether kolel is good or kolel not good, I'll, I'll leave that to your other, other classes. I'm sure uh, you get shidduch counseling and all sorts of, all sorts of things. Uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, I don't want to get into, uh, you know, I might say something against the policy of the school, so I don't want to, I don't want to get in enough trouble in my other school. I don't want to get in trouble in this school, in this school too. Uh, but I just yeah. want to point out that uh, kolel is not a right of the husband. It is kind of a privilege that the wife is granting him and she does have the right, halachically, to say that the husband should support the home. Yeah. Um, guys who want to be in Kola are probably looking for wives that would let them do that. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. That's um, exactly right, yeah. But, like, what happens when, like, he didn't go to college and he just learned and now, and now he can't find a job and she needs to find a job because they're losing money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. So, so, so this is something that you've got to think about ahead of time, meaning you can't just uh, say... 
Well, for the first five years, Kolel is great, but then you have to get a job. If the guy didn't go to college and the guy doesn't have an education, what's going to happen after the five years? So you've got to think about that. That's something to discuss between the couple. And there are, there are different options. I mean, a person can be in Kolel and get an online degree. There are things you can do uh, online. So part of planning is even when you're in Kolel or the, or the man is in Kolel, there's some type of thought as to what the future plan is going to be. Overall, let me just say this, overall, and this is, very, this is a generalization, uh, a certain amount of a kolel life at the beginning of a marriage is usually, usually, not always, usually a good thing. It's usually a positive thing. It's kind of you build a foundation where you can spend uh, that first year or the first two years kind of totally immersed in Torah. Now, that's, that's on the man's side. Uh, the woman, again, you have to figure out what, what is the woman's role in the kolel life. That, that's, a good, that's a very good question. But even then, uh, usually the first year, there are not, in, there are not any children yet, right? Uh, almost by definition. Uh, so uh, a woman can also be very immersed in Torah learning and classes, shiurim, uh, things like that. So it can create a kind of uh, foundation in which you're not involved in the rat race and you're not involved in, in money that much. But uh, in the long run, you know, basically our Chachamim advise that uh, work is actually good, uh, that uh, making a living is a good thing uh, for a man to do. Uh, certainly Kabbalistically, this goes back to the idea of the man is the, uh, uh, the no-same, the giver, the woman is the makabelet, etc. So it goes back to those, those different models. So something to talk about, something to think about. Uh, but, you know, whatever decision you make, can be a good decision, and that will determine who you will want to meet, who you will want to date, and who you will want to marry, right? All of these things, not the only, they're not the only thing that matters, but uh, these are things that you will think about. Okay, so that's the first part of the ksuba. By the way, I'll give you an interesting mushal about this. And this is a totally uh, just a speculation. Everyone knows the famous story of Rabbi Akiva, right? Rabbi Akiva was an ignorant shepherd, talk about kolel, uh, and he didn't even know how to read. And his wife was the daughter of the richest landowner in Jerusalem, the richest one. And she fell in love with this ignorant shepherd uh, who was not, was not rich and he was not educated. And she saw something in him that even he didn't see. And her father disinherited her. She lived in poverty. And she sent her husband off to learn for 24 years. And he started with the kindergarten. He started with the, with the little kids. And uh, they say after 12 years, he, pay, he came home to pay her a visit. And he overheard her talking to her neighbor that her neighbor said to her, what type of husband do you have that leaves you for so many years? And she says, I wouldn't mind if we go for another 12 years. <laughs> and he overheard that and he didn't even say hello. He just went back for another 12 years. And then he comes back <coughs> after 24 years and he is the great, great Rabbi Akiva. And his wife has been living in poverty all those years. And Rabbi Akiva tells his students, everything I am and everything you are is only because of her. She is responsible for everything. Now, it's interesting that there's a great rabbi in the Gemara. His name is Ben Azai. And Ben-Azai never got married because he says he loves Torah so much he couldn't get married. But there is uh, a, a passage somewhere that says he actually got married and he got divorced. He married Rabbi Akiva's daughter and got divorced. So here's my speculation. This is a total guess, but I, I think it's an interesting speculation. 
Why did he marry Rabbi Akiva's daughter and why did he get divorced? Because if you're Ben Azai and all you want to do is learn and you don't want a wife that's going to need things. So who do you look at? I look at Rabbi Akiva's daughter because after all, Rabbi Akiva's mother gave up 24 years of his life for Rabbi Akiva's learning. So he figured, like mother, like daughter. That's a good shidduch for me. Problem is, that daughter saw what her mother went through and she wasn't going to live that way. Again, that's my speculation, why Ben-Azai wanted to marry Rabbi Akiva's daughter and why it didn't work, because Ben-Azai was trying to pull a Rabbi Akiva on Rabbi Akiva's daughter, and she wasn't going to have it because she saw what it did to her mother. So the point I'm making is that for some women, the life of sacrifice is something they really, really love and and they, they, they can rise to. But for other women, it's very destructive, very, very destructive. And uh, the problem with a lot of the Beis Yaakovs is they have this like one-size-fit-all thing in which they say, every girl has to do this. And for a lot of uh, girls, it's a very, very difficult thing, and it's not, not really fair. You know, it's not really fair because it's not the type of life that they could uh, be happy in, and they shouldn't be forced in it because there are different ways of living in halacha. I mean, if you, if you listen to the, the Rebbe's when he passes out dollars, all these people, some people do this and some people do this and some people are kolel and some people are business and he encourages everybody but whatever, you know, what they're doing is what they're doing but then, you know, they should serve Hashem and, you know, give staka, do mitzvos but there was not a concept that everybody had to be the same, the same type, of, uh, type of thing. Everyone had a different type of tafkid, a different type of shlichus and that's good. Hashem needs many types of people in the world. That's why he made people in different, in different ways. Um, okay, so that's the first part of the ksuva. And as I say, in terms of the ksuva, that's actually superfluous because even if it wouldn't be in the ksuva, a husband would have to do it anyway. Okay. Second part of the ksuva... No, in other words, the, the, the first part of the ksuva says... I agree to keep the obligations of a Jewish husband towards his wife. Well, even if he didn't agree, he'd have to do it. So it's superfluous to have to say, I agree to do it. He'd have to do it just because he's getting married? Because he's getting married. Marriage itself obligates him. So he doesn't have to agree. uh, But just to be sure he understands, it's put in. Okay. Now, next part of the ksuva uh, is an agreement to pay his wife an amount of money, I'll, I'll go back to the amount now, in the event he divorces her or in the event that he dies. So we'll call this uh, the divorce or widowhood financial settlement. And that is called Ikar Kasuva. That is the mandatory obligation of the Kasuva. And you'll recall that that is expressed, again, I'm reviewing a little bit, that is expressed in ancient coinage. 200 zuzim for a virgin woman and 100, half of it, 100 zuzim for a non-virgin woman. And it it is odd to me, I don't, I myself do not fully understand why are we so insistent in writing kisuvos in ancient defunct currencies that don't exist? Why don't we write kisuvos dollars or shekel or whatever it is but as I told you, it seems based on modern conversions <coughs> that 200 zuz is not that much, but it's around $5,000. So that actually means the only thing a divorced woman gets or a widowed woman gets 
is uh, $5,000, and if she's a non-virgin on her second marriage, it gets cut down to $2,500. Okay, so that is called Iker Kasuva. Iker Kasuva means the mandatory minimum of a Kasuva. A Kasuva has to be at least that amount of money. So now, let me supplement this a little bit. Uh, a divorced woman under halacha does not have alimony, meaning the husband does not have to pay for her support. Uh, the only thing a divorced woman would get, other than dowry, which I'll get to, is she gets her ksuva money, which is not very much. Not very much. Uh, so there is no alimony in halacha, other than that. However, there is child support in halacha, which is not mentioned. See, the ksuva does not mention child support. There is child support because child support is not for the woman. Child support is for the child. And uh, child support, you'll re- uh, remember, according to the Gemara, amazingly enough, is only until the child is six. So according to the Gemara, I as a father must support my minor children till they reach the age of six. Once they're six, they can go out and work, right? Uh, uh, why should I support them? Uh, Rav Moshe, now some Batedin, even today, even in 2022, Tufshin Pei Beis, 5782. It sounds so almost primitive, but they apply the law of the Gemara and they say, in the case of a divorce, the husband does not have to pay any child support for children that are above the age of six. I had mentioned, however, that Rav Moshe Feinstein said that since today, there are child labor laws. Children are actually not allowed to work anymore. They used to be able to do that. And the minog is that generally children do not support themselves till they reach the age of 18, and even that's pretty young. Rav Moshe says the minhag, the minog meaning the custom, would obligate the father to support his child until 18. Uh, moreover, the Alter Rebbe says much earlier, even under the old time when a child would go to work at six, when the Gemara says the father is not obligated in support, that just means the father is not obligated in food and shelter. But tuition for Jewish education, he would be obligated because there's a separate obligation of a parent to teach their son Torah by paying for Jewish education. So Bekitsur, a divorced woman, is entitled to the kasuva amount, Iker kasuva, which is only, let's say, $5,000, okay? Uh, in addition, she is clearly entitled for her children, child support up to the age of six, according to Rav Moshe Feinstein, up to the age of 18, and according to the Alter Rebbe, uh, even going with the six, but there will be an obligation of Jewish education, which is like day school tuition, even beyond the age of six until the child has, in fact, it's not even clear, even if the child is, is 18, even beyond 18, until the child has learned the basics of the written and the oral Torah. I mean, that could be when he's 30, you know. But basically, if he says a father is obligated to be sure that his son knows the basic Torah. Now, it's not clear what the Alter Rebbe would say about girls. Because since women are technically not obligated to learn the Torah, so it's not clear that this would be any different than regular child support, which would either be at six or be at uh, 18. Okay, so the Alter Rebbe's Chiddush might only apply 
Chiddush, meaning the new, the new uh, thought he's introducing, might only apply to uh, boys and not to girls. Now that is the right of a divorced woman. Now let's talk about the right of a widow for a moment, because uh, I think maybe I didn't cover this last week. The right of a widow is, is actually very different. Uh, a widow is also entitled to a ksuba. But until she gets her ksuba, she has things that are much better. A widow is entitled to be supported by the estate of her husband until she remarries. By that, I mean the following. Let's say a woman lives in a home that she shared with her husband. Her husband died. Now, the home is not inherited by the wife. The home is inherited by their children. And it makes a difference if they're her children or his children from another marriage. So they own the home. She does not own the home. But even though she does not own the home, she is entitled to live in that home rent-free until she remarries. So they cannot kick her out. They cannot sell the house. They cannot charge her rent. And presumably they would have to pay for normal repairs. So this is the right of an almana, not a divorced woman. The right of an almana is to occupy the family home that she shared with her husband without having to pay rent or mortgage uh, or utilities or whatever it would be. Uh, And she has that right until she gets remarried. And in addition, she's entitled to food, clothing, and everything else from the estate of the husband, meaning to say only if the husband left enough enough to cover her, meaning if the husband didn't leave enough to cover her, the kids don't have to make it up. They don't make it up out of their money, but they have to use the estate's money uh, for that. You see? Now, this is a unique rule, a unique halacha that only applies to a widow. Now, once a widow collects her kasuva, however she loses that right. So as a result, if you think about it, it makes no sense for a widow to collect her kasuva until she is about to get remarried. Because if she collects her 5,000 bucks now, she will lose her right to live in the home for free and lose her right to support. So if you're a widow, you don't want to collect your kasuva until the last possible moment because you get something much better. You get the right to live in the home and you get the right to be supported. So as a result... Huh? What huh? The ksuva money? No, the ksuva money is also from the husband's estate. She's owed... A widow is owed a ksuva. A widow is owed that $5,000. Right? But before she actually collects what's reserved as the ksuva money, she can use as much money as she wants from the estate. Well, uh, in the manner, well, not, not as much money as she wants. Uh, she can uh, be supported the, the, with the standard of living she had when her husband was alive. I mean, that's, that, that, that's not unlimited, meaning to say, uh, based in would determine, like, what did she need when she was with her husband? And, right. It's the manner to which she's accustomed. And then, 
assuming she didn't use up everything, <laughs> she could then claim her ksuba when she wants to remarry. But you understand this. You understand why she wouldn't want to claim her ksuba no. early? No, because she's entitled to live in the, in the home of her husband. Well, it's not in the ksuba. I'm just telling you, a widow, a widow has a right to live in the home until she gets remarried or until she collects her ksuba. And she's entitled to be supported from the estate of her husband until she remarries or collects her ksuba. So if she collects her ksuba early, she'll have to move out of the home. So it makes sense for an almana not to collect her ksuba until she is about to get remarried, because then she's going to lose the right to live in the home. So she'll get her extra $5,000. Okay, so there's a very big difference between the rights of a widow and the rights of a divorced woman. Uh, but now, child support, they'll be the same. Uh, that's a separate matter, child support. But, but uh, the widow has the right of living in the home and getting uh, food and shelter and, and clothing from, from the estate of the husband. Uh, a, a divorced woman only gets the ksuba, does not get any of those other things. Uh, they could kick her out of the house. <coughs> I'm not saying it's a nice thing to do, but they could kick her out of the house. They could sell the house or they could charge her rent, meaning if she's a divorced woman, well, typically she won't be, I mean, typically she won't be living in her, in her husband's home anyway. Uh, but if so, for some crazy reason they're divorced and she's in the husband's <laughs> home, uh, they have the right to evict her or they have the right to charge her rent or or whatever, or they could sell the home, or, or whatever whatever it would be, okay? So that's an important difference between Almana and Grusha. Almana is a widow, Grusha is a divorced uh, woman, uh, but all of that is not in the Ksuba. Again, it's important to know. The Ksuba just says, Iker Ksuba, Iker Ksuba, that both a divorced woman and a widow get the 200 Zuz, if she was a virgin marriage, and get 100 zuz if a non-virgin marriage. That's all it says. But to understand it, you need to know the background of these other halachos. They're not in the ksuba. They're in the Gemara. They're in the Shulchan Aruch. And the like, yeah. <coughs> That's correct. That's correct. That that, that is correct. So it's not, it's not that she gets the money, but he's obligated to use that money. <coughs> and uh, even if that leaves him with nothing, as she has priority, she's like, oh, she's like owed a debt to that amount. Okay? <coughs> okay. So I mentioned two things. The first clause in the Ksuva obligates the husband to fulfill the duties of marriage. That's the first thing. The second clause, which is called Ikar Kesuva, is payment in the event of, mari- of, of widowhood or divorce, which is the 200 Zuz in the case of uh, virgin bride and 100 Zuz in the case of non-virgin bride. That's the second clause, and that's called Ikar Kesuva, the main Kesuva. Then the third thing is technically optional. Technically, you don't have to have it, but every ksuva has it. So it is in every ksuva, but technically it doesn't have to be there. And that is called tosefes ksuva. Tosefes ksuva is the voluntary additional amount 
that uh, a person pays. And this goes back to the Talmudic times in which although the minimum ksuba was 200 zuz, but husbands would often agree to pay more money uh, as a gesture of love and affection and goodwill. Technically, it is not required. It is not required, but it has become so standard that I mentioned last week that no rabbi will be Masader Kedushin for you if the husband refuses to put that in. I mean, so what happens sometimes is that things that are really optional according to the halacha become so normal <coughs> that you're not going to be able to get out of this. Now, Tosefet Kesuva technically can be as much or as little, oh, thank you, can be as much or as little as the husband wants. It's whatever the husband wants. But in the Ashkenazi Kesuva, it is standardized by another defunct currency, which is crazy. And the defunct currency is 100 Zakuk. So that's Zion Kuf Vav Kuf, Z-A-K-U-K, Zakuk. Now, Zakuk is a Hebrew term for a medieval coin in Germany and Poland. And suffice it to say that 100 zakuk is around $50,000. But again, there's machloksim, that. So it turns out that the Iker Kesuva is 5,000. The 100 zakuk is 10 times that amount, 50,000. And if it's a non-virgin bride, the 100 zakuk becomes 50 zakuk, which is 25,000, okay? So Iker Ketuba, Tosefet Kesuva, the Iker Kesuva is expressed in terms of Zuz. The Tosefet Kesuva is expressed in terms of Zakuk. Zuz is a coin from Roman times. Zakuk is a Hebrew term for a coin from middle the Middle Ages. Right? So either way, you're using defunct currencies. And that's why, as I mentioned, uh, all the numbers I'm giving you are very approximate and, and we don't really, really know 100%. But as I mentioned to you, again, uh, yeah, I know I'm reviewing, I mentioned to you that the ksuva is very rarely collected because usually they enter into an agreement and uh, the woman might say, instead of the ksuva, which you have to pay me right now, if you pay me something over time, right? So usually the ksuva is like the negotiation for another agreement. So the woman might tell the husband, listen, if you're going to give me, if you're not going to give me what I want, I'm going to demand a kasuva for $55,000. You can't afford that now. So he may agree to pay her $100 a month over 10 years, which actually is much more money. Right? So you have to understand that the kasuva is often a basis for a negotiation of an agreement. That's why it's very rare that a Bastin is going to have to figure out exactly what a Ksuba is. Okay, so I've mentioned again three clauses. The obligation to uh, uh, fulfill the duties of a Jewish husband, number one. Number two, Ikar Ksuba, which is 200 Zuz. Number three, Taisefes Ksuba, which is 100 Zakuk. Right, 200 Zuz, 100 Zakuk, $5,000, $50,000. And for a, virgin bra- for a non-virgin uh, wife, it will be 100 Zuz, which is $2,500. And 
and 50 zakuk, which is $25,000. Again, these are all approximate numbers. Okay, fourth clause of the ksuva is return of property that a woman brought into a marriage. And the Hebrew term for that, actually it's Aramaic, it's not a Hebrew term, is nadunya, nadunya. So that's uh, nun, dalid, vav, nun, yud, aleph, N-E-D-U-N-Y-A, nadunya. And that basically means that any property that a woman brought into the marriage, whether it was money, whether it was a car, whether it was an apartment, the husband agrees to reimburse her based on the value of the property she brought in at the time of the marriage. Right? Understand this. The husband agrees to pay her the value of the property she brought in as it was worth at the time of the marriage. So let's imagine this. She brought in a new car. And at the time of the marriage, the new car was worth $30,000. And they've been married for 10 years. The car is now worth $300. Or there is no car. The car might be long gone. He owes her $30,000 because she brought in a car that was worth $30,000. Okay, so be sure you understand this. This is not giving her back what she brought in. This is giving her back the value of what she brought in, irrespective if the thing is still around or it's worth much less, or it's worth much more, by the way. This is value. Now, the way, this is called the Nadunya Clause. Now, the Nadunya Clause in the olden days was very specific. We would actually sit, sit, sit down every marriage, or before the marriage, and say, okay, how much is this car worth on the market? How much is this computer worth? How much are these, uh, this clothing worth? How, or bank accounts, buildings. And the Nadunya number would be based on the value of what the woman brought in. If she brought in nothing, there wouldn't be an Adunya Clause. If she brought in a million dollars, then Adunya Clause would say a million dollars. What happened over the course of time, though, is, and that's why today, <coughs> they made it a standard amount, meaning it's almost a make-believe, that the Adunya is proclaimed to be a hundred zakuk, so that's the same amount as the tosefes. A hundred zakuk would be uh, fifty thousand uh, dollars, and that means she has that claim for nidunya, even if she didn't bring it in. But I think, as I mentioned last week, if she brought in more than that, she ought to put it in the ksuva. Meaning, it's not fair. This is not designed to cheat her. This is designed to give her a, a minimum amount she could claim, even if the nidunya was not was not there. Okay. So that's why, if you listen to a ksuva, again, it's hard to follow, they read it very fast, and it's Aramaic, and it's not uh, easy, but you'll hear uh, 100 zakukim, zakukim is the plural for zakuk, two times. You'll hear it in the Tosefet ksuva, and you'll hear it in the Nidunya part of the ksuva. Okay? So the four, 
parts of the ksuva, is it obligation, ikra ksuva, pacific? Yes, so that's right. That's correct. Uh, obligation of marriage, ikra ksuva, tosefes ksuva, nidunya. Okay? Actually, maybe I should bring, actually bring in a ksuva and actually take you through it. Uh, you would know something that most uh, guys in yeshiva do not, uh, do not ever look at. Okay, you see, you can check. Most husbands are not, not aware of chlal of what the ksuva even says. Now, the fifth part of the ksuva, there's a fifth part of the ksuva, and that is the enforcement mechanism. That the husband declares that all of his property... And it says even the shirt on his back can be used to collect all of these obligations. So if the husband does not pay up what he owes, his property may be sold, liquidated, to generate the money. And uh, this is even the very shirt on his back. So he might be sitting, I mean, theoretically, uh, he divorces her, he didn't pay the ksuva, he's sitting at a business meeting, and uh, Bastin can come and take off his jacket and take off his shirt. And um, you, used clothes don't go for that much, but he could sell it. They could sell it and uh, get her the money for her ksuba, right? So that's the enforcement, and the Hebrew word for that is shibud. Now, shibud is often translated as slavery, but, but in, in halacha, shibud means a lien. Lien is L-I-E-N. That just means a right to go after property to collect, it's called a lien. I have a lien on your property, right? That's an English word. Uh, the Hebrew word for lien is shibut. Okay, yeah. Ah, okay, so that's interesting. Uh, there is, no, t- in, in a standard kasuva, there is no guarantor. Uh, the halakha does not require there be a guarantor, so the only guarantee, if that is a guarantee, is the lien, is the shibut. But you are correct. Halacha does permit the addition of a guarantor to a ksuba. And uh, if they are doing that, some people do that, uh, they will have the arev, arev is a guarantor, sign the ksuba, and that means if the husband doesn't pay, right, what's a guarantor? Husband doesn't pay. So uh, the wife will have the right to go after this other person. Typically, you'll get a rich person uh, to collect your money. Right? That's an arev. But as I say, an arev for a kasuba is not compulsory. It's not mandatory. But, uh, you are, and typically, you don't see it. Like, as I say, most people don't know what the kasuba is anyway, so they don't think about this. Uh, <coughs> but uh, yeah, the woman would have the right to ask for an arev on the kasuba. How do you spell it? Arev is ayin. Resh, base, or vase. Orev. If you remember, that was the word when, uh, when Yehuda said uh, to Yaakov, give me Binyamin to bring to Yosef and I will guarantee him. His language was, Anochi a'arvenu, the Orev. I will be the Orev. I will be the guarantor that he will come back. Right. So that's the same, same word there. Okay. So those are the four parts, I'm sorry, the five parts of the ksuva itself. Again, the halacha is that um, a uh, marriage is kosher even without a ksuva. If somehow I gave a woman a ring and there were two kosher witnesses, we forgot to do a ksuva, the marriage is kosher. We are married, 
but we're not allowed to live together. We are not allowed to be under the same roof unless there's a ksuva. And even if we did a ksuva, if the ksuva's lost, we're not allowed to be under the same roof until we get a replacement ksuva. To sleep under We cannot sleep under the same roof. Even if we're not sleeping with each other, we cannot sleep under the same roof until we have a ksuva. So I had mentioned that's why it's very important that a woman needs to know. She doesn't have to have her ksuva with her. Again, this is a misconception. If they go on a trip, she does not have to take her ksuva with her, but she has to know where it is in the house. If at any point she doesn't know where it is, it's lost, I don't know where it is, then they have to immediately go to a rav who can do a replacement ksuva. It's not, it's not a big deal. Uh, but you've got get, to get, get two witnesses, etc. You know, you have to kind of redraw the ksuba again, and that can be done. Uh, actually, in my own, my, own, my own marriage, we had to redo our ksuba, I think, because uh, it turns out there was a mistake in a date or a mistake in a name. I don't even remember. But I remember it was difficult. We discovered this on Purim. So it was kind of hard uh, finding a sober uh, people to do it on Purim. But whatever, we managed to, uh, we managed to do it. Uh, but it was so. technically kosher and television, was it? Well, uh, it will be a question, you know, it's, it's, it's a question, uh, depend, depending on the mistake. Different types of mistakes uh, are kosher, even though you should fix them. Some types of mistakes uh, are actually puzzle to begin with, right? So they had no ksuba at all. So it's important to check. In fact, they, they do this now, the mekubalim, you know, I think the Rebbe used to do this for mezuzahs, and other people do it for mezuzahs too, that if you have like bad things happening to you, so they sometimes tell you to check the mezuzah, because the mezuzah protects you. So people check the mezuzah, and you know maybe a letter is missing or, or something, and you fix the mezuzah, that brings bracha, shmira to your house. Right? That's an old uh, idea. But some extend it to the ksuba too. They say that uh, if there's, let's say, a lack of shalom bias, or, or, or there are pregnancy problems, or there are miscarriages, they sometimes say check the ksuba. And the mistakes in the ksuba might also be responsible for a lack of shalom bayis. So, so the two things people, the mekubalim, look at is they look at mezuzahs, or they tell you to check mezuzahs, and they tell you to check uh, ksuvas, because that could also be uh, potentially a mistake. Yeah. So two questions. First of all, um, if, if a couple is technically married, but they don't have a ksuva, yeah. then what does that mean if, if they can't even live together? Well, it, me- well it, me- it means that she's not allowed to marry anybody until she gets a get, meaning, meaning she is bound to, bound to him, uh, even though they can't live together. So uh, if she would want to marry another man, she could not do so until she gets a Jewish divorce. So they are, they are halachically married, and they have an obligation to fix the ksuba. That's why I hear a lot, this is a misstatement, but I hear a lot of people say this, that uh, what makes a Jewish marriage a marriage is a ksuba. That, that's not a true statement. A Jewish marriage is the giving of the ring in front of two witnesses, uh, kosher witnesses. That makes the marriage. The ksuva is an obligation of a Jewish marriage, but it does not make a Jewish marriage. A Jewish marriage is a valid marriage, even without a ksuva, but they're not allowed to live together unless, until they get a ksuva. Yeah. So I was at a wedding where they... Um I don't know how it happened, but like I think they like mixed up some of the steps. Yeah. And everyone passed <coughs> everything for like a solid five minutes while the rabbi was texting his father-in-law on this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And I'm wondering like what, but if their their kasuba is fine, and they'd already given the ring, everything was all 
in order so far, but like something had gone out of order? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what a common problem might be. I'll tell you exactly what a common problem might be. Uh, a kesuva cannot have a date that's earlier than the marriage itself. The kesuva can be later, can be dated later than the marriage, but it cannot be dated earlier than the marriage. Now, this is a real problem, because let, let, me, let me explain this, because of the Jewish proclivity of, of being late for everything. Let's assume that our wedding was announced, right? I'm supposed to get married uh, 4 p.m. Uh, Thursday. Now, 4 p.m. is before sunset. So I get a pre-drawn kasuva, an artistic kasuva, that has Thursday's date. But let's say we're running two or three hours late. So by the time we have the chuppah, it's already dark, and technically it's the next day. So if the kasuva says, let's say, whatever the date is, the 24th of Teves, which was Thursday's date, but the chuppah is not until after sunset, then the Ksuba should not be dated the 24th of Teves. The Ksuba should be dated the 25th of Teves. And a Ksuba that has the wrong date, an early date, an early date, not, not a later date, is puzzle. So the question becomes, how do you correct it? That's part of why the phone call, because it's not so simple. Uh, you, you might think, well, the simplest thing is just cross it out and fill in the right. Not always so because uh, you're not really supposed to cross things out because when witnesses sign a ksuba, they're not necessarily signing on the cross-out. You may have to have witnesses initial or sign their names on every cross-out, mm-hmm. which makes the ksuba look pretty, uh, you know, whatever. So I imagine, my, my, I'm just guessing, I, mean, I imagine that the issue was, how do you fix it? Now what they sometimes do is this. Uh, the big fancy artistic ksuba that you paid $500 for, you don't want to mess that up with scratching things out and everything else. So what happens is the Rav brings like a cheap kasuva that you can get online for free, just print out a, a thing, and that becomes the official kasuva. And artistically, they can hang up uh, the fancy kasuva. Yeah, they have to hold on to the cheap one. That's right, that's right. And in fact, they also have to write on the back of the artistic one, this is not a kosher kasuva, because... They have to write that as well. So that's what happened. So, so I imagine they were probably fooling around with uh, how to fix it. I think in this case, the, the suva was fine, and they had yeah. already given the ring, but it was like something in the order of how they had done things had been off, and there, there were like five rabbis. It's a little well, uh, yeah, well, that's, that's the other thing. Uh, that's, the other, that's the other thing. Um, rabbis love, love to... Uh, Right, whatever you always see, they're always arguing. I, 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 to this day, I still wonder what, what are, what is everybody there arguing about? They love to argue and look at the ksuva and you know, and, and this and that. And, uh, like I, should, my wife, I, I mean, I shut. I don't know. I have this thing. I shut off when rabbis are discussing something. You know, I'm in another world. I literally, you know, don't even listen to what they're discussing. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, what happens sometimes, but, but I don't know why, why this would be a problem. Sometimes the sheva brachas are set out of order. Mm. There are seven brachas under the chuppah, and it's very easy, you know, to mix it up. Somebody says the sixth bracha before the fifth bracha, mm-hmm. but you know, usually you don't have to do anything about it. Just what, what was done was done, so you don't have to say it again. The order is not ma'akev. Uh, so I, I don't know. I don't know what the problem would be. Um, I don't know. Um, again, I, 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 I mean, the, the most common mistake I think is the is the date on the ksuba. That, that that's a big issue. That that. that that you face. And that's because uh, weddings are late, right? That's the problem. Uh, when you make your chasna for four, I mean, that, that's why I, I, w- I would advise people who are getting artistic suvos 
that unless their chuppah is really early, like the chuppah is maybe 12 in the afternoon, so even if it's two hours late, it's fine. But if you're within two or three hours of sunset, I would not put in the date. Now, did you leave it blank? I do not put in the date until the, the chuppah, precisely because of that problem. Because if you put in a date, and then it's after shkia, you're in, you're in a big trouble at that point. Uh, the ksuba is not going to be valid. Now, again, this is only if it's an earlier date. Technically, you can actually gamble and put in a later date, and then you're covered even if the wedding is early, but that's not l'chatchila. L'chatchila is better not to have uh, the they wrong date. They can't be under the same roof until that date? Huh? They can't be under the same roof until that date? Yeah, well, well, part of it is, the problem is, um, it's, a little, it's kind of a complicated law. The problem is with the lien, because the rule is the ksuba creates a lien from the date of the wedding, right? Now, that means that if the, if, the, if the husband sold property to somebody, the woman could go after that property. But if the ksuba is predated, if the husband sold property the day before the chuppah, the, hus- the wife thinks she can go after that property, but she really can't, so it's, it's a question of the person losing that, losing that property. So uh, the ksuva is not effective until the chuppah, until the chuppah itself. And until they're married, there's no, there's no ksuva. So until the ksuva, they're, they're bound to each other, but he has no obligations towards her, and they can't really even be together? Like, what's the... Well, well he, he has all the obligations other than marital intimacy, which he's not allowed to have. Uh, he, has to support, he has to support her. But the ksuva says the ksuva is the thing that obligates him to do. <coughs> yeah, I understand, but that goes back to my first point that the obligations of marriage are because he's married, not because of the ksuba. So even if there's no ksuba, he still has to keep those obligations, except the rabbis prohibited marital intimacy because uh, they want him to write a ksuba. By the way, why, why, did, why, why, why do they care so much whether there's a ksuba? So it's interesting. The Chachamim made this enactment so it shouldn't be e- so easy for him to divorce her because uh, if divorcing would have no cost to him, he would just divorce her if he got angry. The kasuva creates a break, a disincentive. Break meaning B-R-E-A-K-E, a break that stops you from divorcing. So that's why the kasuva was, uh, was important, that it shouldn't be e- easy for a man to divorce his wife. Yeah. So then in the case of someone who's refusing a get, what is his, like, he has a responsibility to support her, but he's also, like, how does that even happen? Yeah, well, we, 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 we will talk about that extensively. I mean, the short answer is uh, a man who refuses to give his wife a get is 100% responsible to support her. And she can go to a basin and he'll be ordered to support her. The only problem is, I mean, listen, uh, outside of Israel, at least, uh, people can be ordered to do many things by basin and they just don't do it. Like, what is a basin going to do? Uh, well, we'll talk about this, but... The basin, I mean, after all, the basin ordered him to give a get, and he didn't do it. So the basin orders him to support his wife. He's not going to do it. So you have a real problem, not so much uh, what the basin will do, but the problem is, uh, you no, know, people don't listen to basins. Mm. That that's a tremendous that's a tremendous issue. Okay, so this is what the the kasuva is, and again, it is not written in Hebrew. It is written in Aramaic. Uh, and the reason was, strangely enough, because Chazal wanted people to understand. It's a funny thing. Aramaic to us is like incomprehensible language. But in the time of the Gemara, Aramaic was the spoken language. So Aramaic was like English. 
So things were written in Aramaic not to make them more complicated. Things were written in Aramaic so that every single person would understand it. So why don't we write our tuba in English? That's a very, it's a very good point. Uh, it's kind of similar, you know. Uh, there's a mitzvah. I mean, women don't have this mitzvah. Uh, this is called Shnayim Mikra V'yachot Targum. Have you ever heard, heard of this? Uh, in which people read the Parsha of the week. Shnayim Mikra. They read the Pasuk twice, and they read the Unkelis, Aramaic translation, once. Shnayim Mikra V'yachot Targum. And the purpose of that was to be familiar with what the Torah says. Now, the question is, that made sense when Aramaic was a spoken language. Today, it's almost the opposite. I'll look into the Hebrew to see what... I read the, the Pasuk and I read the Aramaic. The Hebrew is more familiar to me than the Aramaic. So some say that Bisman Hazah, you can fulfill Shnaya Mikra V'yechad Targum with a good English translation. And some say, Bidafka, you can. Uh, and others say, you can fulfill it with Rashi. Uh, but of course, Rashi also, you need either a translation or you need to know Hebrew well. And Rashi, the problem is, that too, that Rashi does not comment on every Pasuk. Rashi on Chumash is on most Pesukim, but not every Pasuk. And even on a Pasuk he comments on, he does not comment on every part of the Pasuk. So it's brought down that if you're, if you're trying to do this mitzvah by Rashi, when you don't have a Rashi, you have to uh, read the translation of Unkelis or, or an English translation or, or whatever it is. So that's another example where uh, Aramaic was introduced because everybody understood it, and today you know, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't work that way anymore. By the way, there's only one place in the world where Aramaic is still a spoken language, a spoken language, not just from books. And this is a Christian village in Syria. See, Aramaic was not only a Jewish language. Aramaic was a language the of... Same yeah, so if you're learning Gemara and you don't know what a word means, you could go, I don't know how you're going to get there, but you can go to these Christians in Syria. And to them, to them, this is their regular language. They speak Aramaic, not Arabic. Don't confuse it. Arabic is different. Aramaic, the Aramaic of the Gemara, of the Medrash, is the language of certain Christian groups in Syria. And they're the only ones who speak Aramaic as a spoken language. Jews don't speak, we, we have Aramaic as a literary language. We have it in our Sfarim, and Gemara, the Zohar, the Medrash. But nobody like speaks Aramaic uh, today. But they actually speak, uh, they actually speak Aramaic. I don't know. I mean, I mean, it was spoken by Christians, but I, I don't know why they preserved it. Because it's not, it's not the normal. I mean, the normal language in Syria is Arabic, which is a different language. But there are some old villages that still kept uh, Aramaic. In fact, uh, if you ask the question, not that it's so important for us, what language did uh, Yashka speak? Right? Uh, Jesus, right? But <coughs> in all probability, the language that they spoke at the time was Aramaic, is, was the language that was spoken. That was the most common language. In fact, um, among the Jews, even in Eretz Israel, many understood Aramaic better than Hebrew. Hebrew was uh, kind of a higher level, and not everybody understood Hebrew. That's why it mentions, the Gemara mentions, <coughs> Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, 
didn't like Aramaic. He only spoke Hebrew in his house. And even the maidservants in his house knew Hebrew better than the Talmidim in the yeshiva. So when they didn't understand words in Tanakh, they would ask the maid servant of Rebbe to tell them the translation of the words because in Rebbe's house it was only Hebrew, but in most homes it was Aramaic, like Yiddish, like Yiddish. Right, the analogy is Yiddish, right? You went, you you know, you go to a, certainly in Europe and the Hasidic homes today, the language in the house is not Hebrew. The language in the house is uh, Yiddish, so Aramaic was the Yiddish of the time. Native language changed from like, like seventy years. That was the Babylon exile, right? So yeah. How can it change from that's a good question, seventy but, uh, years, like but se- seventy years is a long is a long time. Seventy years is a long time, and a lot of things can happen. <coughs> remember, remember that uh, Russian, the uh, communism, communists in Russia, were basically seventy years, right? The Russian Revolution was 1917 and the overthrow of the Soviet Union was I think 1987 or 70 years 70 years and in that 70 years um, other than you know Chabad which was very great in Russia Chabad and and Breslov Yiddishkeit was almost totally over those three generations Yiddishkeit would have been totally destroyed under Stalin and and, and the like so 70 years can can change a lot of things a lot of things Um, I mean, Chabad was one of the great, great uh, forces in, in the middle of, of Soviet Union, trying to keep things, keep things going. Can we not really have a concrete reason why we don't write the Ksuba in English now? All, all I can say is, is tradition. I mean, meaning, uh, some things are just tradition. We don't like to change things. We don't like to make reforms. But Alpi Halacha, now that you understand the Ksuba, it's not a religious document, it, it has monetary obligations. So there's no reason at all why the Ksuba cannot be in English. So it really could be. It can absolutely, in other words, if you're asking me, would a Ksuba be kosher in English? The answer is 100% it's kosher in English. And you could even give a reason that it would be better to have it in English or whatever language so that people would, would understand it. But nevertheless, uh, Messiah is Messiah, tradition is tradition. So uh, even things we're allowed to change, we don't like to, to fool around with uh, that, that much. But I did mention that the Sephardic Suva has all of these five parts. Okay, five parts, same five parts. But there are two differences between a Sephardic Suva and an Ashkenazi Suva. Uh, one is the Cherem of Rabbeinu Gershom. So again, let me remind you what that is. Under Torah law, a man is allowed to have more than one wife. That's called polygamy or bigamy. Uh, You're allowed to do that. A man is allowed to do that. But Rabbeinu Gershom, who was uh, the the, the Gadol Hador in the generation before Rashi, that early, uh, he and his basin made a gezerah. They made a, a decree that a man is not allowed to have more than one wife. And this decree is backed up by what is called a cherem. What is a cherem? Excommunication. That anybody who violates this decree is excommunicated from the Jewish people. You can't count them for a minion or whatever it is. So this is called cherem of Rabbeinu Gershom. Now originally, 
the cherem had an expiration date. It was supposed to expire a real long time ago, the year 5,000. Now, now we're 5,782, right? The year 5,000, it was going to expire. Uh, and some people sometimes say, oh, you're allowed to marry two wives because it expired. But unfortunately, that's not true. Uh, Rav Yosef Cairo brings that they extended it. <laughs> they made it uh, in perpetuity. Now, Rabbeinu Gershom's jurisdiction, he was in Germany, was over Ashkenazic Jews. Ashkenazic Jews, what do I mean specifically? Germany, Poland, Russia, England, France. I mean, there was no, there was no America in those days, but uh, those, are, <laughs> those are the Ashkenazic Kehilos. The Svardim, which includes Spain, although Spain is part of Europe, because Spain, then North Africa, Morocco, Libya, Tunisia, and then Syria, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, right? Those Svardim, many different types of Svardim. They never accepted Rabbeinu Gershom's cherem. And therefore, they continued. It was never a big, I mean, not that many people were doing it, but, but according to Allah, they continued to have polygamy, to have more than one wife. But many uh, fathers of Kalos didn't want their daughter to be part of a harem. So they put a clause in the ksuba that says, the chassan swears he is not going to take another wife. And if he does so, he will divorce my daughter and pay her a ksuba of a million dollars or something like that. So you don't need this in an Ashkenazic ksuba. Because under an Ashkenazic ksuba, he's not allowed to take another wife anyway. But in a Sephardic ksuba, you need it. And that's why a Sephardic ksuba is a little longer not, not every Sephardic Suva has it, but in some Sephardic Suvas, there'll be a Shavua, an oath, <coughs> that uh, the Chassan will comply with the ban of Rabbeinu Gershom, even though he is a Sephardi. And if he does not comply, he will pay a very high Kisuva uh, because, of, because of that. That's one difference. And a second difference between Ashkenazi and Sephardi, and this depends, but in the Nedunya Clause, some Svardim still give exact amounts. They actually say uh, what the Nadunya is, depending on how much it is and the like. So it'll be more specific than the Ashkenazi Ksuba that is a one size, one size fit all. Okay? So I think you, 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 so you have a pretty good grasp, I hope, of what is a Ksuba. Yeah? That when it comes to the Nadunya, instead of giving some amount like 100 Zokuk, they will actually evaluate what the Kala brought in and they will assign it. Now, uh, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying every Sephardi Ksuba does this, but you'll see it more among Sephardi than among Ashkenazi. Uh, yeah? Just to clarify. So basically, um, the official marry one brings us to English two witnesses there. Yeah. And the Ksuba is needed, but that's not what's officiated in the wedding. That is correct. Okay, so again, I, I don't want to uh, denigrate the importance of the ksuba. It is absolutely a halachic obligation to have a ksuba, but it does not affect the validity of the marriage itself. Yeah. So if they have a ksuba, if they just have, they just did the ring part of the yep. marriage, um, can they be under the same roof, as in like in the same house, but 
like is the family there also and they're not sleeping in the same room? Okay, so let me put it this way. Uh, if they have a um, marriage without a ksuba, they are subject to the same laws of yichud that two single people would, would be. Meaning, uh, I can be with a woman I'm not married to if there are other people there, etc. So same thing here, but I could not be alone. Right, so essentially, uh, the, the same laws of yichud that they had before they're married, they have after they're married, uh, and there's no ksuba. So if someone makes a later date on their ksuba, then, just like you were saying before, because they want to make sure that they get the right date on yeah. the ksuba, and let's say their, mar- their wedding is on time, and they are going to the yichud room before the date on their ksuba. Uh, that's, a good, that's a good question, but Lamaisa, we, we, permit the, we do permit the yichud there. As long as it's a kosher ksuba, even if it's post-dated, although you're raising a good question. Uh, we, we let them uh, have yichud together. Okay? Okay, uh, any questions about, uh, about the ksuba? Okay, alrighty. So, uh, so that's the wedding, and after the wedding you have the marriage, right? The marriage is actually more important than the wedding. Uh, this is a point that people need to think about. People spend so much preparation about wedding, which is a one night, a very special night, but it's one night or one day, whatever it will be. Uh, but the marriage is the life that a person has over hopefully, hopefully the rest of their lives with the children, family, etc. And uh, sometimes uh, we think more about the wedding than we think about the marriage. And uh, one has to think about that. In fact, it always bothered me a little bit. Uh, and, you know, when I made weddings for my own children, I was thinking about this. You know, a wedding is expensive. is expensive, right? Israel it can be cheaper than America, but certainly in America it's very expensive. And it could be thousands and thousands of dollars. And you can split it, how you split it, bride's family, groom, okay, whatever it is. But it costs a lot of money. So here's the thing. Uh, again, this is just uh, something you think about. You know, why should uh, somebody spend, let's say $10,000, $20,000 for a wedding? Why don't you just make a minimal wedding of 10, 10 people and serve cake in your backyard? And then give the chasen and the kala $20,000. The chara, from a practical perspective, you know, a bride and groom, a chasen and a kala, can use $20,000 more than a one-day wedding, right? So why make a big wedding at all? Meaning, what's the, what's the logic of making a big wedding? Take the money, give it to the chasen and the kala, and make the wedding bargain basement. Now, I don't know how you would feel about this, that's something you think about. I mean, I, I also did. I mean, I, I did make a big wedding, but you know. But uh, the question is, is that even logical? So for many years, I thought. I mean, even though I did, like everyone else did, but I thought, you know, it really makes no sense to make a big wedding. Why make a big wedding? Uh, give the money to the to the to the couple. But then somebody said, the Robinson said, an interesting thought, that a chasen and a kala need psychologically a big send-off. Because as much as they think they love each other and know each other, it's very scary to get married. You know, you're starting your journey on life with someone and you hope and you pray to Hashem that everything will be good. But you know, you're different. You come from different backgrounds. Husband and what men and women are, are different in, 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 in so many ways. And there's a certain, you know, pachat that a chasna and a kala has. And the reason why Chazal were so big on Misameach Chasen Bakala, 
I mean, you might, you might even ask the question, why is there such a mitzvah to make a chassan and a kala happy? They're already happy. Like, I mean, I understand if you tell me, you know, make a sad person happy, etc. Why, why is there a mitzvah to make a happy person happy? They're already happy. The answer is they're happy, but they're also a little scared. And they need the assurance that Hashem is with them, and they need the assurance that their community is with them, that their friends are with them, that they're not entering a married life like alone. And that gives them a lot of chizuk. And that's why Chazal were mishabeach, to be misameach a chasen v'kala, because it may not be a complete joy, because there's always that little bit of fear, am I making the right, am I making the right decision, you see? So that, uh, that, kind, that kind of convinced me a little bit. I mean, I just, I mean, she didn't say it to me. She just wrote a column. And I said, eh, that's something you think about. So maybe uh, people do need a, I mean, each person is different. But maybe people do need a big wedding uh, on some level. Sheva brachas and all these different things. By the way, just a little halacha about Sheva brachas. Let me tell you that people don't know. Uh, what is Sheva brachas? So Sheva brachas, right, are seven brachos that I recited. But they really... Uh, come in two categories. One set is recited under the chuppah itself, and that's the beginning of Nesuin. That's part of the marriage ceremony. But then, for the next seven days, uh, there are going to be special meals. The wedding meal is the first one, but for seven days, in which, uh, at the, after benching, we recite the Sheva Brachas, right? So when we say Sheva Brachas, we're often thinking about the whole week, rather than the only under the chuppah. So here's something that people don't realize, according to halacha. There is no chiyuv to make a sheva brachos meal every day of the seven days. Do you understand what I'm saying? Meaning to say, uh, if there happen to be ten people who are gathered together for the chasen and the kala, then you're, you're obligated to say sheva brachos. But if the chasen, let's, let's say the chasen of the kala would simply say, no, you not do this without, because you might get in trouble. But the chasnukah would simply say, you know, this is the third day after our wedding. You know, we're tired. We would like to be together. Uh, we would rather not have any Sheva Brachos party tonight. According to halacha, that's perfectly okay. There is no obligation to have a Sheva Brachos celebration every one of the seven days. And in fact, what Shlomo Zalman Arbach says, now, of course, he was, he was talking about extreme poverty, that in the Yerushalayim he grew up in, the beginning of the 20th century, where people were very, very poor, they commonly made no Sheva Brachos at all except on Shabbos. Meaning they had the wedding, they had the chasna, and the wedding meal, and uh, the whole week there'd be no Sheva Brachos at all. They'd only make it on Shabbos. And according to the halacha, that is permitted. So that's one thing to keep in mind. So if you really... Okay, I don't want to get in trouble there. If you really wanted to take a day, a day off, you are permitted to take a day off from it. But the minog Yisrael, I have to say, the minog of Klal Yisrael is that we do have the Sheva Brachos every, uh, every day, even though it's not an obligation. Now, Sheva Brachos does require a minion of people, uh, and there's a rule, of, of men, I should say, men, and there is a rule that each meal has to have somebody who wasn't at the wedding or the prior meals. This is called ponim chadashot, a new face. So, 
specifically one of the men? One, one of the men. Yeah, yeah, one of the minion. One of the minion has to be So that basically means that you can't have a minion of people who are either at the, which were either at the wedding or at any of the other Sheva brachas. You can have the same people over and over again, but you have to have one person that is new. And the exception, however, is Shabbos. Shabbos is treated as a new guest. So when you make a Sheva brachos on Shabbos, you don't need panim chadashos because the holiness of Shabbos the Malka is the panim chadashos that you need for the Sheva brachos. Okay, so now uh, the... I'm sorry, yeah. Um, no. No, as a matter of fact, they do not have to be. It's not like witnesses. Okay. They could be people who aren't religious, but but uh, they should believe in Hashem, meaning to say uh, an atheist should not be counted for this minion. But if he's a person who believes in God, even if he doesn't keep all the mitzvot, he can be counted for the minion. Yeah. So, just that, that question made me curious. So, Does that the witnesses have to be Shomer Shabbat, they have to be like in yeah. halacha. Yeah. What about non-Orthodox Jewish weddings? Well, <coughs> the short answer is that most non-Orthodox Jewish weddings are not kosher weddings, mm-hmm. precisely for that reason, uh, because, not because the rabbi was conservative, but because he didn't have Shomer Shabbat's witnesses, which would actually mean that uh, you know, if they ever want to uh, have a, a, a valid marriage, they would have to get remarried. Oh, so Baruch Hashem, it doesn't mean anything because technically, no, 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 no. Uh, this is a very important point. We, we talked about this a lot. Uh, technically, the parents are living out of wedlock. Now, that sounds really bad. But Jewish children born out of wedlock have no disability or stigma. It's only a Jewish child born from adultery that's called a mamzer and has, has different things, okay? So most balal truma, most, most girls, most girls or most men, most boys, boys or girls, men or women, who are, uh, come from non-religious homes are technically born out of wedlock, meaning to say their parents were not validly married. That sounds really bad, but it doesn't affect you at all. You're totally kosher, you're totally fine. You don't have to worry about it, you see? So, but, but, tech, but technically, uh, if your parents did not have uh, an Orthodox marriage, in the eyes of halacha, they're not married. Yeah? Do we recognize non-Jewish divorces? Do we recognize non-Jewish divorces? Like, let's say there's a Jewish couple, um, and then they divorce, uh, didn't have Jewish family. Yeah, so this is a big problem. There is no such thing as a non-Jewish divorce. Meaning the following, if we had a Jewish marriage, the Jewish marriage can be dissolved only by a Jewish divorce, which is called a get. A non-Jewish secular divorce is meaningless. Now, uh, that's a real problem uh, because uh, if somebody was married and didn't get a get, even if they got a secular divorce, in the eyes of halacha, they are still married. But the good news is that in many cases, the marriage wasn't valid. So I would say this, if the marriage is not a halachic marriage, 
then the secular divorce will be fine. Okay, it's fine because you didn't have a marriage, right? So a secular, a secular divorce works for a secular marriage. But a secular divorce does not work for a Jewish marriage. And that's why a Jewish marriage needs to get. Again, we'll talk about that in great detail. But the point I'm making is that uh, those of you who were born from a non-halachic marriage have no problem. You have no disability in terms of who you could marry and the like. Uh, so don't don't worry about it so much. Do, do, yeah. do both the chas and amakal have to be there with the meaning of men? Oh, so that's a very excellent. That is a very excellent question because indeed uh, it's not uncommon that one or the other may be sick. Right? The, uh, no, I would say the first week of marriage, if, if if your wife is sick, you know, you ought to stay home or, or vice versa. But sometimes, you know, uh, there's a whole party waiting, so the chasen may show up, and the kala may be sick. Less common is the kala may show up and the chasen may be sick. It, that tends to be less, less common. So can they make a sheva brachas? So the rule is they can make a sheva brachas if either the chasen or the kala is there. Uh, if neither of them are there. Uh, they cannot make a, a Shema Brachas. Yeah? I know there's this concept of like a, like a Shomer, like someone has to like, a couple. Yeah, yeah. So this is not a Halacha per se, but let me get, explain a little bit of a background. Uh, there is a concept in Kabbalah that uh, when a person is on the verge of a great spiritual achievement, the Satan tries to make it bad and mess it up and bring in bad things. So it says a chasen and a kala before their wedding are about to do something very, very magnificent. So they, they're, they're vulnerable to various powers of impurity that might try to hurt them in different ways. So because of this, the minag was, again, it's not, it's not an absolute requirement, the minag was that the day of the wedding, the day of the chapach, and some start the night before, the chasen and the kala <coughs> should never be left alone. There should always be a shomer or a shomerit. There should always be uh, someone that's their guardian, their chaperone, that stays with them uh, or with her, but both for the man and for the, uh, for the woman. But again, as I say, yeah, you know, if you can do it, that's a good thing, but that's not a, an absolute. And after, or uh, no, no. There I would say no, because uh, at that point they're a shomer for each other, meaning once you have, once they're married, then they can be with each other. Why? Did you hear about having a shomer during so shomer? Like, them to shomer oh, okay, you're talking about something else. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about something else. That's not a shomer. Maybe they use the word shomer. Uh, that's kind of uh, shushvinin. Shushvinin is someone who escorts the bride and the groom down the aisle, and some say that should be for Sheva Brachas as well. There should be escorts. Now, that's not a matter of Ayan Hara. That's a matter of Kavod, because since a Chasna and a Kala are like a Melech and a Malka, a king and a queen, so a king and a queen always have an honor guard with them. They never just go by themselves. So that, that's a separate thing. That, that's, uh, uh, that's called Shushvinin. Maybe they use the word Shomer uh, for, that, uh, for that as well. Okay, so the thing I'm going to talk about, I'll, say, I'll save it for next week, is a very, unfortunately in this day and age, is a very, very common type of question, and that is, uh, what are the laws of Sheva Brachos if uh, one or both have been married before, or even if they haven't been married before, uh, if they've had 
sexual relations before, whether with each other or with other people, does that change? It doesn't change the chuppah ceremony. The chuppah ceremony will have the shevar brachas, but uh, does it change shevar brachas during the week? Because sometimes you'll see we say shevar brachas for seven days, and sometimes we only do it for one day, and, and this will depend on that type of issue. Uh, but I'll, I'll save it for next week because that's a little little bit of an intricate thing. So next week, oh, next week you're on vacation, right? Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. Okay, so ne- next time we, we, we meet, uh, we'll talk about Shavar Brachas. Yeah. Are we going to talk about prenup? We absolutely will. Uh, in fact, I got to I got to modify myself because when I talk about the the prenup and the aguna, I could go for ten or twelve weeks. So I got to be very careful uh, not not to spend so many weeks. Uh, uh, sometimes Rebbe Singer once uh, said she got complaints from people that uh, I was talking about it for three months or something. So I have to. <laughs> so I got to be careful. But uh, you will you will know a lot about a lot about that. Okay. So enjoy uh, your vacation, and uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Bye bye. On um, the escorts that they have the Yeah. Is that for a Seven days? Like the, are the showmen for seven days and the for seven days? No, no, no. I, I think the shushvinim are only to bring them to the Sheva brothers. Oh, just the Sheva Yeah, yeah, they're not.